The History of Literature podcast is a member of the Podglomerate Network and Lit Hub Radio. Hello. In 1965, a critic named Joseph Wood Crutch studied the available evidence and came to a striking conclusion. Edgar Allan Poe, he wrote, invented the detective story in order that he might not go mad. Unfortunately, it wasn't enough. Madness would eventually overcome Mr. Poe. But perhaps it was forestalled by these tales of ratiocination, a word that Poe invented. There's something sublimely spooky about the idea of this genius clinging to his acute mental facilities, aware of the dark shadows hovering over the bright candle of his mind, and using the best weapon he ever had, not the loyal support of friends and family, not personal wealth or earthly powers, but the fleeting, ephemeral power of his own ability to think. How does one not go mad? One looks for first principles, hard facts, logical truths. In order not to be insane, one shoots for hypersanity. It's safe there. Cogito ergo sane. I think logically, and therefore I am sane. Poe explored this theme of rational analysis for three intense years. He wrote three adventures of the proto-Sherlockian Parisian detective, C. Auguste Dupin. He wrote about a highly rational search for buried treasure in the gold bug. Murders were solved in Thou Art the Man. Even stories like A Descent into the Maelstrom and A Tale of the Ragged Mountains contained rational analysis. It was a phase Poe went through from 1841 to 1844, and it spawned a whole new genre of fiction, the classic tale of mystery, the detective story. There's a reason why the mystery writers of America don't call their annual awards the best mystery or the best writer or the best mystery writer, the best detective story. They call their awards simply the Edgars. The Dupin stories are fascinating to me. We've seen Poe struggle with his two sides, the one of reason, the one of madness, the one in control and with a conscience, the one out of control and acting out of addiction and impulse. The Dupin stories are The Murders in the Rue Morgue in 1841, The Mystery of Marie Roger, 1843, and The Purloined Letter, which we'll hear today. Why did he stop writing them? Not just Dupin stories, but... Tales of rational analysis altogether. Was it time for him to give in to his madness? Or had he thought that perhaps he had perfected the form? Arthur Conan Doyle, who worshipped Dupin from an early age, was ready to take the baton. His Sherlock Holmes stories are more of a continuation of the Parisian detective with some amendments than an homage or an overturning. We'll have that story first, and then we'll hear the purloined letter itself today on the History of Literature. Okay, here we go. Hello, everyone. I'm Jack Wilson, your host. The Purloined Letter and Mr. Edgar Allan Poe. This is our fifth episode this year on Poe, and we have one more to go. There are a lot of Thursdays this month. (laughs) He's our Thursday theme this October, and we started early with Hop Frog back in September. We then looked at the Black Cat, 
a classic horror story, and William Wilson, the tale of doppelgangers. And then we jump to Paris for a look at Poe's own doppelganger, the poet Baudelaire, who read Poe and found a kindred spirit. And the posthumous Poe found in Baudelaire his greatest early champion. We'll stay in Paris this week for a look at the classic story of a Parisian detective, and next week we will round things out with one of the greatest Poe stories of, a, of all. Maybe not the greatest, but maybe in the top two, uh, two or three or four at least, and maybe it's the greatest. It might be my favorite. You are going to enjoy that one, I think. So let's take a quick break then come back and talk all about Poe and Arthur Conan Doyle, speaking of doppelgangers, because for me, the connection between the two... Did I say connection? <laughs> oh, I'm talking like Moira. It's a little too early for me. For me, the connection between the two, Poe and Arthur Conan Doyle, is just wonderful. Poe wrote these three stories. These Dupin stories, they might have been a curiosity at that point, but Conan Doyle saw their power and their potential, and he applied his own special genius to them, his medical background, the physician he knew, and the world of -of turn-of-the-century London, and his winning prose style, his taste for adventure, and he gave us Sherlock Holmes and Dr. Watson. How much of that came from Poe? How much was added by Conan Doyle? I love questions like that, not just because it's history, although it is, but because I myself have taken a lot of pleasure from Sherlock Holmes, I, along with millions of others, and every mystery writer who came after owes a debt of gratitude to Conan Doyle for that. I love seeing how these stories work, taking them apart, breaking them down, considering them. We are analyzing the mysteries of the mystery story today. That makes it sound almost important. Maybe it is a little important. Or maybe it's just a fun thing to do. But isn't that important too? Sometimes. Edgar Allan Poe, Arthur Conan Doyle, and the Purloined Letter. Coming up next. Hey, grown-ups! The Cat in the Hat cast is a new podcast from Wondery, perfect for the whole family. Join the Cat in the Hat and your favorite Dr. Seuss characters as they get whisked away on a new adventure every week. Fish dreams of creating his very own polite and quiet podcast. That is, until he gets a surprise visit to his Fishbowl podcast studio from the Cat in the Hat himself. And it becomes very clear that the cat has other plans for the podcast, and those plans are the opposite of quiet. The cat may be disruptive, but it turns out he's also a great help to get fish out of all kinds of predicaments. Bursting with music, silliness, and rhymes, the Cat in the Hat cast encourages us all to find fun that is funny in every episode. Sing along to new favorite songs, try your luck at Titanic tongue twisters, have some fun with wondrous wordplay, and most importantly, Bring your family along for all of the adventures in the Cat in the Hat cast. Follow the Cat in the Hat cast on the Wondery app or wherever you get your podcasts. You can listen to the Cat in the Hat cast ad-free right now by joining Wondery Plus in the Wondery app 
or Wondery Kids Plus in Apple Podcasts. wrote just three stories featuring the Parisian detective C. Auguste Dupin. Dupin was the only recurring character Poe ever used. No other character ever appears in more than one Poe work. Three stories are The Murders in the Rue Morgue, which many consider the first detective fiction story, The Mystery of Marie Roger, which Poe based on a real-life case, which was then in the newspapers about a woman named Mary Rogers. Poe transferred her and the case to Paris, and The Purloined Letter, which we'll hear later today. Those stories appeared 1841, 1842, and 1844. Poe knew what he had. He knew this was brand new, this form, and that it worked. Did he know that others would follow? It's not clear that he did. Poe was so wildly inventive that he seems to have thrown these things out like sparks flying off a runaway wheel. How could he have imagined Sherlock Holmes and the worldwide celebrity that the character would bring Arthur Conan Doyle? On the other hand, Poe knew that the stories were clever, that they worked. The subject works, the character works, the story has a momentum to it. The purloined letter might be my best, he said. I think of it kind of like James Nysmith hanging a peach basket in a gymnasium and asking his students to throw a ball into it. He invented basketball. Can he foresee Michael Jordan or LeBron James? Can he picture a world where millions of people watch games from around the world on their televisions? Which, of course, television itself was before his time. Or could he imagine packed stadiums screaming for their favorite basketball team? Of course he couldn't exactly, but... Could he play this game with the peach basket and the ball and a handful of people? Could he see that it's fun? Could he see that with a few rule changes and a few tweaks, it could be much more exciting than the other indoor games they had going at the time, that it's full of motion and nonstop action and scoring? There's some logic to it. There's different ways of playing defense and so on, and different levels of skill. I'm sure he could see that. I'm sure he did, and in fact... He did see it catch on like wildfire, this game of his. He designed the game basketball in 1891, and by 1904, they were playing it in the Olympics as an exhibition sport. He was still alive when the NCAA played their first tournament in 1939. So, what does this have to do with Poe? I think of Nysmith in that first moment of invention when he tried out the game, when he had a spark of an idea and put it into motion, and how he must have thought, oh yes, I've got something here. I thought this might work, and it does, and oh man, does it ever. The basics of what Poe had are so elementary, no pun intended, that we take them for granted. Let's just look at what Conan Doyle borrowed from him. 
These are the similarities between the Dupin stories and Sherlock Holmes, and there are many. One writer said that, quote, the only difference between Dupin and Holmes is the English Channel, end quote. Similarity number one, in both stories we have at the heart a highly intelligent but somewhat eccentric and enigmatic detective. The word detective did not actually exist, one Poe was writing, which gives you a sense of how novel he was. He might have taken the idea from a series of magazine articles about a French policeman. Otherwise, he was on his own. This was all his. Similarity number two. Both stories are told by a narrator who is friends with the detective. This narrator is impressed, sometimes astounded, by his friend's almost superhuman abilities. Doyle actually improved upon Poe's narrator by making his narrator, Dr. Watson, an actual character, with his own backstory, his own features, a name, his own capabilities. In Poe, the narrator is unnamed, and we know little about him. Some more similarities. Both types of stories, both Holmes and Dupin, involve the solving of crimes by the use of deduction. Poe called this rational thinking or rational analysis or ratiocination. In both sets of stories, the detective has a relationship with the police, who are portrayed as more or less bumbling. They're not slapstick figures exactly, but they don't get the job done either, lacking the abilities of the detective. They're at a loss. They're stumped. They've applied their resources and manpower to the job, and they have not figured it out. Something about the way they go about thinking about these problems has blocked them from finding the true answer. Enter the genius. And the genius can do a lot from his armchair. That's the other thing. Most of what Dupin and Holmes do comes from their reasoning out details that others provide for them. The others do the grunt work. They do the surveillance. They do the careful search. They do the interviewing of witnesses. They track some things down. Dupin, sorry, Dupin and Holmes figure out how to make sense of all those facts, and they do go and take some action at times. Both Poe and Conan Doyle realize that if their genius is tied to a chair, the stories might become inert. So they go out, the heroes go out, they discover things for themselves, they encounter danger and opportunity. Another similarity, these are high-stakes puzzles, not the routine stuff for these guys. They are impossible crimes with dazzling solutions. Poe invented the locked room mystery. Think about how amazing that concept is. A door is locked, a crime is committed, nobody could get in or out, seemingly. How? How? Conan Doyle grabbed that one with both hands. Here's another similarity. The air of method that makes you think, that's Poe's phrase, that ma it makes you think that there's more to it than there is. Here's where the gears of fiction's machinery are at work, invisibly, silently, behind the scenes, if the author is any good. The mystery seems normal. The solution seems astounding. It was right there in front of everyone's eyes, even the readers sometimes, but only the detective was clever enough to see it. This makes us think that the detective is extraordinary, a person of high IQ, a kind of super genius, and the writer must be as well. But as Poe himself acknowledged, this is a trick. This is the writer at work, not the detective. The writer knows what to withhold from the reader and what to provide, and that makes all the difference. The others in the story are smart, but they overlook things. That's the invention of the writer, too. The overall effect is that there's an unsolvable crime 
smart people who try hard but can't figure it out, and a detective who arrives to solve it. We think the detective must be one of the smartest people who ever lived, and we think the author who created the character must be even a little smarter. But as Poe recognized, this isn't necessarily true, but the structure of the story that makes it seem that way. Here's a letter that Poe wrote in 1846 to a man named Philip P. Cook. Quote, You are right about the hair splitting of my French friend. That is all done for effect. These tales of ratiocination owe most of their popularity to being something in a new key. I do not mean to say that they are not ingenious, but people think them more ingenious than they are on account of their method and air of method. In the murders in the Rue Morgue, for instance, where is the ingenuity of unraveling a web which you yourself, the author, have woven for the express purpose of unraveling? The reader is made to confound the ingenuity of the suppositious Dupin with that of the writer of the story, end quote. And finally, there's the similarity that reasoning can answer problems. Life can be sorted out, fit into a neat box. The Victorians loved this. They were surrounded by anxiety about the Industrial Revolution and new ways of living. They took to Sherlock Holmes, who told them that reason would prevail Good would conquer evil. Life would be ordered. It's easy to see why that idea would appeal to Poe, just on a personal level. Doesn't seem an accident that Dupin was born wealthy and that he lives according to his means. Two things Poe longed for. And Dupin has a friend, the narrator. Maybe that was a goal for Poe as well. Let me be clear about Arthur Conan Doyle. I think he was amazing. I think he saw the sparks flying out of these stories and he fanned them into flames. Agatha Christie, too. They were both amazing, but Poe was first. Conan Doyle wasn't shy about saying that. He said, quote, Edgar Allan Poe, who in his carelessly prodigal fashion threw out the seeds from which so many of our present forms of literature have sprung was the father of the detective tale, and covered its limits so completely that I fail to see how his followers can find any fresh ground which they can confidently call their own. For the secret of the thinness and also of the intensity of the detective story is that the writer is left with only one quality, that of intellectual acuteness, with which to endow his hero. Everything else is outside the picture and weakens the effect. The problem and its solution must form the theme and the character drawing be limited and subordinate. On this narrow path, the writer must walk, and he sees the footmarks of Poe always in front of him. He is happy if he ever finds the means of breaking away and striking out on some little sidetrack of his own. End quote. Amazing. Astonishing. Poe wrote three short stories with Dupin. And here's the undeniable king of the genre, Arthur Conan Doyle, saying he did it all. He did it all. Sometimes we can find a little footpath, veer off a little bit on our own, but the main trail is already navigated. It's already been explored. Edgar got there first. Hmm. At a special dinner honoring Poe, I also like Conan Doyle for saying all this, by the way. He was generous. He could have 
said, no, no, I never. I, I don't even know if I've read those stories. In fact, what do you mean? Who? Edgar who? No, he was much more uh, self-effacing than that. Generous in giving credit to Poe, who had been dead for decades at this point. At a special dinner honoring Poe, Conan Doyle said, quote, His tales were one of the great landmarks and starting points in the literature of the last century for French as well as English writers, for those tales have been so pregnant with suggestion, so stimulating to the minds of others, that it may be said of many of them that each is a root from which a whole literature has developed. His original and inventive brain was always trying daring experiments, always opening up pioneer tracks for other men to explore. It is the irony of fate that he should have died in poverty. For if every man who wrote a story which was indirectly inspired by Poe were to pay a tithe towards a monument, it would be such as would dwarf the pyramids. Where was the detective story? until Poe breathed the breath of life into it. End quote. I have one more of these in his literary memoir, Through the Magic Door. Doyle said, quote, To him must be ascribed the monstrous progeny of writers on the detection of crime, of whom I have been a small part. Each may find some little development of his own, but his main art must trace back to those admirable stories of Monsieur Dupin, so wonderful in their masterful force, their reticence, their quick dramatic point. After all, mental acuteness is the one quality which can be ascribed to the ideal detective, and when that has once been admirably done, succeeding writers must necessarily be content for all time to follow in the main track. End quote. Conan Doyle put the acknowledgments to Poe right in the Holmes stories. Dr. John Watson says once to Sherlock, You remind me of Edgar Allan Poe's Dupin. I had no idea that such individuals did exist out of stories. That's in A Study in Scarlet. Another in Chapter 2, The Science of Deduction. Conan Doyle writes, Sherlock rose and lit his pipe. No doubt you think you are complimenting me in comparing me to Dupin he observed. Now, in my opinion, Dupin was a very inferior fellow. That trick of his of breaking in on his friend's thoughts with an apropos remark after a quarter of an hour's silence is really very showy and superficial. He had some analytical genius, no doubt, but he was by no means such a phenomenon as Poe appeared to imagine. End quote. That's kind of nice. <laughs> Sherlock, carving out a little territory for himself, Another place, he says, You remember, said he, this is in the cardboard box, You remember, said he, that some little time ago, when I read you the passage in one of Poe's sketches, in which a close reasoner follows the unspoken thoughts of his companion, you were inclined to treat the matter as a mere tour de force of the author. On my remarking that I was constantly in the habit of doing the same thing, you expressed incredulity. <laughs> End quote. A little jealousy there. Sherlock Holmes is standing up for himself against his friend. <laughs> There's more parallels as well. I guess I don't need to read all of them. Conan Doyle even took one of the plots from Edgar Allan Poe. These three stories were the gift that keep on giving for him. The Sign of Four from 1890 has close ties to Poe's The Murders in the Rue Morgue. Conan Doyle 
has said post-masterful detective Monsieur Dupin had, from boyhood, been one of my heroes. End quote. I think he read and reread those stories over and over. What would Poe have said about this? Would he have acknowledged the tribute, been, been uh, thankful for it? We know he hated plagiarism. He said, plagiarism belongs to the most barbarous class of literary robbery, that class in which... While the words of the wronged author are avoided, his most intangible and therefore his least defensible and least reclaimable property is purloined. End quote. I'd like to think, knowing everything that he knows, he wouldn't have, if he knew everything that happened after, he wouldn't have minded too much. Doyle came much later. Had Poe lived, Doyle might have sought out Poe, helped him, and so forth. Doyle's homage to Poe has helped to make Dupin famous. Had Doyle departed too far from Poe, we might never have learned just how amazing Poe's invention was. Others have borrowed from Poe as well, of course, or were inspired by him via Doyle, sometimes directly from Poe. Dostoevsky called Poe an enormously talented writer. He reviewed Poe's detective stories and loosely based one of the characters in his novel Crime and Punishment on Dupin. Louisa May Alcott was another near contemporary of Poe's. She wrote a parody of Dupin and Poe. Borges refers to Dupin in Death and the Compass. He translated Poe, one of his fans, like Baudelaire, who we talked about last time. Agatha Christie, of course, modeled Hercule Poirot in his method on the Holmes slash Dupin example, and she had Poirot write a book about Edgar Allan Poe, perhaps as a wink to the reader. So let's go to one of these three miraculous stories now. We'll hear The Purloined Letter, the third and final tale involving Poe's great and innovative detective, C. Auguste Dupin, after this. Just after dark, one gusty evening in the autumn of 18 blank, I was enjoying the twofold luxury of meditation and a meerschaum, in company with my friend C. Auguste Dupin, in his little back library or book closet, La Troisième, number 33, Rue Duneau, Faubourg, Saint-Germain. For one hour at least we had maintained a profound silence while each, to any casual observer, might have seemed intently and exclusively occupied with the curling eddies of smoke that oppressed the atmosphere of the chamber. For myself, however, I was mentally discussing certain topics which had formed matter for conversation between us at an earlier period of the evening. I mean the affair of the Rue Morgue and the mystery attending the murder of Marie Roger. 
I looked upon it, therefore, as something of a coincidence when the door of our apartment was thrown open and admitted our old acquaintance, Monsieur G., the prefect of the Parisian police. We gave him a hearty welcome, for there was nearly half as much of the entertaining as of the contemptible about the man, and we had not seen him for several years. We had been sitting in the dark, and Dupin now arose for the purpose of lighting a lamp, but sat down again, without doing so, upon G's saying that he had called to consult us, or rather to ask the opinion of my friend, about some official business which had occasioned a great deal of trouble. "'If it is any point requiring reflection,' observed Dupin as he forbore to enkindle the wick, "'we shall examine it to better purpose in the dark.' "'That is another of your odd notions,' said the prefect, who had a fashion of calling everything odd that was beyond his comprehension, and thus lived amid an absolute legion of oddities. "'Very true,' said Dupin, as he supplied his visitor with a pipe, and rolled towards him a comfortable chair. "'And what is the difficulty now?' I asked. "'Nothing more in the assassination way, I hope.' Oh, no, nothing of that nature. The fact is, the business is very simple indeed, and I make no doubt that we can manage it sufficiently well ourselves. But then I thought Dupin would like to hear the details of it, because it is so excessively odd. Simple and odd, said Dupin. Why, yes, and not exactly that either. The fact is, we have all been a good deal puzzled, because the affair is so simple and yet baffles us altogether. "'Perhaps it is the very simplicity of the thing which puts you at fault,' said my friend. "'What nonsense you do talk!' replied the prefect, laughing heartily. "'Perhaps the mystery is a little too plain,' said Dupin. "'Oh, good heavens! Who ever heard of such an idea?' "'A little too self-evident.' "'Ho, ho, 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 ho!' roared our visitor, profoundly amused. Oh, Dupin will be the death of me yet. And what, after all, is the matter on hand? I asked. Why, I will tell you, replied the prefect, as he gave a long, steady, and contemplative puff, and settled himself in his chair. I will tell you in a few words, but, before I begin, let me caution you that this is an affair demanding the greatest secrecy, and that I should most probably lose the position I now hold— were it known that I confided it to anyone. Proceed, said I. Or not, said Dupin. Well, then, I have received personal information from a very high quarter that a certain document of the last importance has been purloined from the royal apartments. The individual who purloined it is known, this beyond a doubt. He was seen to take it. It is known, also, that it remains in his possession. How is this known? asked Dupin. It is clearly inferred, replied the prefect, from the nature of the document and from the non-appearance of certain results which would at once arise from its passing out of the robber's possession, that is to say, from his employing it as he must design in the end to employ it. Be a little more explicit, I said. Well, I may venture so far as to say that the paper gives its holder a certain power in a certain quarter where such power is immensely valuable. The prefect was fond on the cant of diplomacy. 
Still, I do not quite understand, said Dupin. No? Well, the disclosure of the document to a third person, who shall be nameless, would bring in question the honor of a personage of most exalted station. And this fact gives the holder of the document an ascendancy over the illustrious personage whose honor and peace are so jeopardized. But this ascendancy, I interposed, would depend upon the robber's knowledge of the loser's knowledge of the robber. Who would dare? The thief, said G, is the minister D, who dares all things, those unbecoming as well as those becoming a man. The method of the theft was not less ingenious than bold. The document in question a letter, to be frank, had been received by the personage robbed while alone in the royal boudoir. During its perusal, she was suddenly interrupted by the entrance of the other exalted personage, from whom especially it was her wish to conceal it. After a hurried and vain endeavor to thrust it in a drawer, she was forced to place it, open as it was, upon a table. The address, however, was uppermost, and, the contents thus unexposed, the letter escaped notice. At this juncture enters the minister D. His lynx eye immediately perceives the paper, recognizes the handwriting of the address, observes the confusion of the personage addressed, and fathoms her secret. After some business transactions, hurried through in his ordinary manner, he produces a letter somewhat similar to the one in question, opens it, pretends to read it, and then places it in close juxtaposition to the other. Again, he converses for some fifteen minutes upon the public affairs. At length, in taking leave, he takes also from the table the letter to which he had no claim. Its rightful owner saw, but of course, dared not call attention to the act in the presence of the third personage who stood at her elbow. The minister decamped, leaving his own letter, one of no importance, upon the table. Here, then, said Dupin to me, you have precisely what you demand to make the ascendancy complete, the robber's knowledge of the loser's knowledge of the robber. Yes, replied the prefect, and the power thus attained has, for some months past, been wielded, for political purposes, to a very dangerous extent. The personage robbed is more thoroughly convinced every day of the necessity of reclaiming her letter. But this, of course, cannot be done openly. In fine, driven to despair, she has committed the matter to me. Then whom— said Dupin, amid a perfect whirlwind of smoke, no more sagacious agent could, I suppose, be desired, or even imagined. You flatter me, replied the prefect, but it is possible that some such opinion may have been entertained. It is clear, said I, as you observe, that the letter is still in possession of the minister, since it is this possession, and not any employment of the letter, which bestows the power. With the employment, the power departs. True, said G, and upon this conviction I proceeded. My first care was to make thorough search of the minister's hotel, and here my chief embarrassment lay in the necessity of searching without his knowledge. Beyond all things, I have been warned of the danger which would result from giving him reason to suspect our design. 
But, said I, you are quite au fait in these investigations. The Parisian police have done this thing often before. Oh, yes, and for this reason I did not despair. The habits of the minister gave me, too, a great advantage. He is frequently absent from home all night. His servants are by no means numerous. They sleep at a distance from their master's apartment, and, being chiefly Neapolitans, are readily made drunk. I have keys, as you know, with which I can open any chamber or any cabinet in Paris. For three months a night has not passed, during the greater part of which I have not been engaged, personally, in ransacking the D's Hotel. My honor is interested, and to mention a great secret, the reward is enormous. So I did not abandon the search until I had become fully satisfied that the thief is a more astute man than myself. I fancy that I have investigated every nook and corner of the premises in which it is possible that the paper can be concealed. But is it not possible, I suggested, that although the letter may be in possession of the minister, as it unquestionably is, he may have concealed it elsewhere than upon his own premises? This is barely possible, said Dupin. The present peculiar condition of affairs at court, and especially of those intrigues in which D is known to be involved, would render the instant availability of the document, its susceptibility of being produced at a moment's notice, a point of nearly equal importance with its possession. Its susceptibility of being produced, said I. That is to say, of being destroyed, said Dupin. True, I observed. The paper is clearly then upon the premises. As for its being upon the person of the minister, we may consider that as out of the question. Entirely, said the prefect. He has been twice waylaid, as if by footpads, and his person rigorously searched under my own inspection. You might have spared yourself this trouble, said Dupin, D, I presume, is not altogether a fool, and, if not, must have anticipated these waylayings as a matter of course. Not altogether a fool, said G, but then he's a poet, which I take to be only one remove from a fool. True, said Dupin, after a long and thoughtful whiff from his meerschaum, although I have been guilty of certain doggerel myself. Suppose you detail, said I, the particulars of your search. Why, the fact is we took our time and we searched everywhere. I have had long experience in these affairs. I took the entire building, room by room, devoting the nights of a whole week to each. We examined first the furniture of each apartment. We opened every possible drawer, and I presume you know that, to a properly trained police agent, such a thing as a secret drawer is impossible. Any man is a dolt who permits a secret drawer to escape him in a search of this kind. The thing is so plain. There is a certain amount of bulk, of space, to be accounted for in every cabinet. Then we have accurate rules. The fiftieth part of a line could not escape us. After the cabinets, we took the chairs. The cushions we probed with fine, long needles you have seen me employ. From the tables, we removed the tops. Why so? Sometimes the top of a table or other similarly arranged piece of furniture is removed by the person wishing to conceal an article. Then the leg is excavated, the article deposited within the cavity, and the top replaced. 
The bottoms and tops of bedposts are employed in the same way. But could not the cavity be detected by sounding? I asked. By no means, if, when the article is deposited, a sufficient wadding of cotton be placed around it. Besides, in our case, we were obliged to proceed without noise. But you could not have removed, you could not have taken to pieces all articles of furniture in which it would have been possible to make a deposit in the manner you mention. A letter may be compressed into a thin spiral roll, not differing much in shape or bulk from a large knitting needle. And in this form, it might be inserted into the rung of a chair, for example. You did not take to pieces all the chairs. Certainly not, but we did better. We examined the rungs of every chair in the hotel, and indeed the jointings of every description of furniture, by the aid of a most powerful microscope. Had there been any traces of recent disturbance, we should not have failed to detect it instantly. A single grain of gimlet dust, for example, would have been as obvious as an apple. Any disorder in the gluing, any unusual gaping in the joints, would have sufficed to ensure detection. I presume you looked to the mirrors, between the boards and the plates, and you probed the beds and the bedclothes, as well as the curtains and carpets. That, of course, and when we had absolutely completed every particle of the furniture in this way, then we examined the house itself. We divided its entire surface into compartments, which we numbered, so that none might be missed. Then we scrutinized each individual square inch throughout the premises, including the two houses immediately adjoining, with the microscope, as before. The two houses adjoining, I exclaimed. You must have had a great deal of trouble. We had, but the reward offered is prodigious. You include the grounds about the houses? All the grounds are paved with brick. They gave us comparatively little trouble. We examined the moss between the bricks and found it undisturbed. You looked among D's papers, of course, and into the books of the library. Certainly. We opened every package and parcel. We not only opened every book, but we turned over every leaf in each volume, not contenting ourselves with a mere shake, according to the fashion of some of our police officers. We also measured the thickness of every book cover with the most accurate admeasurement and applied to each the most jealous scrutiny of the microscope. Had any of the bindings been recently meddled with, it would have been utterly impossible that the fact should have escaped observation. Some five or six volumes, just from the hands of the binder, we carefully probed, longitudinally, with the needles. You explored the floors beneath the carpets? Beyond doubt, we removed every carpet and examined the boards with a microscope. And the paper on the walls? Yes. You looked into the cellars? We did. Then... I said, you have been making a miscalculation, and the letter is not upon the premises, as you suppose. I fear you are right there, said the prefect. And now, Dupin, what would you advise me to do? To make a thorough research of the premises. That is absolutely needless, replied G. I am not more sure that I breathe than I am that the letter is not at the hotel. I have no better advice to give you, said Dupin. You have, of course, an accurate description of the letter. Oh, yes. And here the prefect, 
producing a memorandum book, proceeded to read aloud a minute account of the internal and especially of the external appearance of the missing document. Soon after finishing the perusal of this description, he took his departure, more entirely depressed in spirits than I had ever known the good gentleman before. In about a month afterwards, he paid us another visit, and found us occupied very nearly as before. He took a pipe and a chair and entered into some ordinary conversation. At length I said, Well, but gee, what of the purloined letter? I presume you have at last made up your mind that there is no such thing as overreaching the minister. Confound him, say I. Yes, I made the re-examination, however, as Dupin suggested, but it was all labor lost, as I knew it would be. How much was the reward offered, did you say? asked Dupin. Why, a very great deal, a very liberal reward. I don't like to say how much precisely, but one thing I will say, that I wouldn't mind giving my individual check for 50,000 francs to anyone who could obtain me that letter. The fact is, it is becoming of more and more importance every day, and the reward has been lately doubled. If it were trebled, However, I could do no more than I have done. Why, yes, said Dupin, drawlingly, between the whiffs of his meerschaum. I really think, G, you have not exerted yourself to the utmost in this matter. You might do a little more, I think, eh? How? In what way? Why, you might employ... Counsel in the matter, eh? Do you remember the story they tell of Abernathy? No, hang Abernathy. To be sure, hang him and welcome. But once upon a time, a certain rich miser conceived the design of sponging upon this Abernathy for a medical opinion. Getting up for this purpose an ordinary conversation in a private company, he insinuated his case to the physician as that of an imaginary individual. We will suppose, said the miser, that his symptoms are such and such. Now, doctor, what would you have directed him to take? Take, said Abernathy. Why, take advice, to be sure. But, said the prefect, a little discomposed, I am perfectly willing to take advice and to pay for it. I would really give 50,000 francs to anyone who would aid me in the matter. In that case, replied Dupin, opening a drawer and producing a checkbook, you may as well fill me up a check for the amount mentioned. When you have signed it, I will hand you the letter. I was astounded. The prefect appeared absolutely thunder-stricken. For some minutes he remained speechless and motionless, looking incredulously at my friend with open mouth and eyes that seemed starting from their sockets. Then, apparently recovering himself in some measure, he seized a pen, and after several pauses and vacant stares, finally filled up and signed a check for fifty thousand francs, and handed it across the table to Dupin. The latter examined it carefully and deposited it in his pocketbook. Then, unlocking an escritoire, took thence a letter and gave it to the prefect. This functionary grasped it in a perfect agony of joy, opened it with a trembling hand, cast a rapid glance at its contents, and then, 
scrambling and struggling to the door, rushed at length unceremoniously from the room and from the house, without having uttered a syllable since Dupin had requested him to fill up the check. When he had gone, my friend entered into some explanations. The Parisian police, he said, are exceedingly able in their way. They are persevering, ingenious, cunning, and thoroughly versed in the knowledge which their duties seem chiefly to demand. Thus, when G. detailed to us his mode of searching the premises at the Hotel D., I felt entire confidence in his having made a satisfactory investigation, so far as his labors extended. So far as his labors extended, said I. Yes, said Dupin, the measures adopted were not only the best of their kind, but carried out to absolute perfection. Had the letter been deposited within the range of their search, these fellows would, beyond a question, have found it. I merely laughed, but he seemed quite serious in all that he said. The measures, then, he continued, were good in their kind and well executed. Their defect lay in their being inapplicable to the case and to the man. A certain set of highly ingenious resources are, with the prefect, a sort of procrustean bed, to which he forcibly adapts his designs. But he perpetually errs by being too deep or too shallow for the matter in hand, and many a schoolboy is a better reasoner than he. I knew one about eight years of age whose success at guessing in the game of even and odd attracted universal admiration. This game is simple and is played with marbles. One player holds in his hand a number of these toys and demands of another whether that number is even or odd. If the guess is right, the guesser wins one. If wrong, he loses one. The boy to whom I allude won all the marbles of the school. Of course, he had some principle of guessing, and this lay in mere observation and admeasurement of the astuteness of his opponents. For example... An errant simpleton is his opponent, and, holding up his closed hands, asks, Are they even or odd? Our schoolboy replies, Odd, and loses, but upon the second trial he wins, for he then says to himself, The simpleton had them even upon the first trial, and his amount of cunning is just sufficient to make him have them odd upon the second. I will therefore guess odd. He guesses odd and wins. Now, with a simpleton a degree above the first, he would have reasoned thus. This fellow finds that in the first instance I guessed odd, and in the second he will propose to himself upon the first impulse a simple variation from even to odd, as did the first simpleton. But then a second thought will suggest that this is too simple a variation, and finally he will decide upon putting it even as before. I will therefore guess even. He guesses even and wins. Now this mode of reasoning in the schoolboy, whom his fellows termed lucky, what, in its last analysis, is it? It is merely, I said, an identification of the reasoner's intellect with that of his opponent. It is, said Dupin, and, upon inquiring of the boy by what means he effected the thorough identification in which his success consisted, I received answer as follows. When I wish to find out how wise, or how stupid, or how good, or how wicked is anyone, or what are his thoughts at the moment, I fashion the expression of my face as accurately as possible in accordance with the expression of his, and then wait to see what thoughts or sentiments arise in my mind or heart as if to match or correspond with the expression. 
This response of the schoolboy lies at the bottom of all the spurious profundity which has been attributed to Rochefoucauld, to La Bougive, to Machiavelli, and to Campanella. And the identification, I said, of the reasoner's intellect with that of his opponent depends, if I understand you aright, upon the accuracy with which the opponent's intellect is admeasured. For its practical value, it depends on this, replied Dupin, and the prefect and his cohort fail so frequently, first, by default of this identification, and secondly, by ill-admeasurement, or rather through non-admeasurement, of the intellect with which they are engaged. They consider only their own ideas of ingenuity, and, in searching for anything hidden, advert only to the modes in which they would have hidden it. They are right in this much, that their own ingenuity is a faithful representative of that of the mass. But when the cunning of the individual felon is diverse in character from their own, the felon foils them, of course. This always happens when it is above their own, and very usually when it is below. They have no variation of principle in their investigations. At best, when urged by some unusual emergency, by some extraordinary reward, they extend or exaggerate their old modes of practice without touching their principles. What, for example, in this case of D, has been done to vary the principle of action? What is all this boring and probing and sounding and scrutinizing with the microscope and dividing the surface of the building into registered square inches? What is it all but an exaggeration of the application of the one principle or set of principles of search which are based upon the one set of notions regarding human ingenuity to which the prefect, in the long routine of his duty, has been accustomed. Do you not see he has taken it for granted that all men proceed to conceal a letter, not exactly in the gimlet hole bored in a chair leg, but at least in some out-of-the-way hole or corner suggested by the same tenor of thought, which would urge a man to secrete a letter in a gimlet hole bored in a chair leg. And do you not see also that such recherches, nooks for concealments, are adapted only for ordinary occasions, and would be adopted only by ordinary intellects? For in all cases of concealment, a disposal of the article concealed, a disposal of it in this recherche manner, is in the very first instance presumable and presumed. And thus, its discovery depends not at all upon the acumen, but altogether upon the mere care, patience, and determination of the seekers. And where the case is of importance, or what amounts to the same thing in the palatial eyes, when the reward is of magnitude, the qualities in question have never been known to fail. You will now understand what I meant in suggesting that, had the purloined letter been hidden anywhere within the limits of the prefect's examination, in other words, had the principle of its concealment been comprehended within the principles of the prefect, its discovery would have been a matter altogether beyond question. This functionary, however, has been thoroughly mystified, and the remote source of his defeat lies in the supposition that the minister is a fool." because he has acquired renown as a poet. All fools are poets, this the prefect feels, and he is merely guilty of a non-distributio medi in thence inferring that all poets are fools. But is this really the poet? I asked. There are two brothers I know, and both have attained reputation in letters. The minister, I believe, has written learnedly on the differential calculus. 
He is a mathematician and no poet. You are mistaken. I know him well. He is both. As poet and mathematician, he would reason well. As mere mathematician, he could not have reasoned at all, and thus would have been at the mercy of the prefect. You surprise me, I said, by these opinions, which have been contradicted by the voice of the world. You do not mean to set at naught the well-digested idea of centuries. The mathematical reason has long been regarded as the reason par excellence. Il y a a perier, replied Dupin, quoting from Chamfort, que tout you can bet on the fact, replied Dupin, quoting from Chamfort, that any idea and convention that is widely accepted is wrong, for it is simply convenient to the greatest number. The mathematicians, I grant you, have done their best to promulgate the popular error to which you allude, and which is nonetheless an error for its promulgation as truth. With an art worthy a better cause, for example, they have insinuated the term analysis into application to algebra. The French are the originators of this particular deception, but if a term is of any importance, if words derive any value from applicability, then analysis conveys algebra about as much as in Latin ambitus implies ambition, religio religion, or homines honesty a set of honorable men. You have a quarrel on hand, I see, said I, with some of the algebraists of Paris, but proceed. I dispute the availability and thus the value of that reason which is cultivated in any especial form other than the abstractly logical. I dispute, in particular, the reason induced by mathematical study. The mathematics are the science of form and quantity. Mathematical reasoning is merely logic applied to observation upon form and quantity. The great error lies in supposing that even the truths of what is called pure algebra are abstract of general truth, and this error is so egregious that I am confounded at the universality with which it has been received. Mathematical axioms are not axioms of general truth. What is true of relation, of form and quantity, is often grossly false in regard to morals, for example. In this latter science, it is very usually untrue that the aggregated parts are equal to the whole. In chemistry also, the axiom fails. In the consideration of motive, it fails, for two motives, each of a given value, have not necessarily a value when united, equal to the sum of their values apart. There are numerous other mathematical truths which are only truths within the limits of relation. But the mathematician argues from his finite truths through habit as if they were of an absolutely general applicability, as the world indeed imagines them to be. Bryant, in his very learned mythology, mentions an analogous source of error when he says that, although the pagan fables are not believed, yet we forget ourselves continually and make inferences from them as existing realities. With the algebraists, however, who are pagans themselves, the pagan fables are believed, and the inferences are made, not so much through lapse of memory as through an unaccountable addling of the brains. In short, I never yet encountered the mere mathematician who could be trusted out of equal roots, or one who did not clandestinely hold it as a point of his faith that x squared plus px was absolutely and unconditionally equal to q. 
say to one of these gentlemen, by way of experiment, if you please, that you believe occasions may occur where x squared plus px is not altogether equal to q, and, having made him understand what you mean, get out of his reach as speedily as convenient, for, beyond doubt, he will endeavor to knock you down. I mean to say, continued Dupin, while I merely laughed at his last observations, that if the minister had been no more than a mathematician, the prefect would have been under no necessity of giving me this check. I knew him, however, as both mathematician and poet, and my measures were adapted to his capacity, with reference to the circumstances by which he was surrounded. I knew him as a courtier, too, and as a bold intrigant." Such a man, I considered, could not fail to be aware of the ordinary palatial modes of action. He could not have failed to anticipate, and events have proved that he did not fail to anticipate, the waylayings to which he was subjected. He must have foreseen, I reflected, the secret investigations of his premises. His frequent absences from home at night, which were hailed by the prefect as certain aids to his success, I regarded only as ruses to afford opportunity for thorough search to the police, and thus the sooner to impress them with the conviction to which G, in fact, did finally arrive, the conviction that the letter was not upon the premises. I felt, also, that the whole train of thought, which I was at some pains in detailing to you just now, concerning the invariable principle of palatial action in searches for articles concealed, I felt that this whole train of thought would necessarily pass through the mind of the minister." It would imperatively lead him to despise all the ordinary nooks of concealment. He could not, I reflected, be so weak as not to see that the most intricate and remote recess of his hotel would be as open as his commonest closets to the eyes, to the probes, to the gimlets, and to the microscopes of the prefect. I saw, in fine, that he would be driven, as a matter of course, to simplicity if not deliberately induced to it as a matter of choice. You will remember, perhaps, how desperately the prefect laughed when I suggested, upon our first interview, that it was just possible this mystery troubled him so much on account of its being so very self-evident. Yes, said I, I remember his merriment well. I really thought he would have fallen into convulsions. The material world— continued Dupin, abounds with very strict analogies to the immaterial, and thus some color of truth has been given to the rhetorical dogma that metaphor or simile may be made to strengthen an argument, as well as to embellish a description. The principle of the vis inertia, for example, seems to be identical in physics and metaphysics. It is not more true in the former that a large body is with more difficulty set in motion than a smaller one, and that its subsequent momentum is commensurate with this difficulty than it is in the latter that intellects of the vaster capacity, while more forcible, more constant, and more eventful in their movements than those of inferior grade, are yet the less readily moved, and more embarrassed and full of hesitation in the first few steps of their progress. Again, have you ever noticed which of the street signs over the shop doors are the most attractive of attention? I have never given the matter a thought, I said. There is a game of puzzles, he resumed, which is played upon a map. One party playing requires another to find a given word, the name of a town, river, state, or empire, any word, in short, upon the motley and perplexed surface of the chart. 
a novice in the game, generally seeks to embarrass his opponents by giving them the most minutely lettered names. But the adept selects such words as stretch in large characters from one end of the chart to the other. These, like the over-largely lettered signs and placards of the street, escape observation by dint of being excessively obvious. And here the physical oversight is precisely analogous with the moral inapprehension by which the intellect suffers to pass unnoticed those considerations which are too obtrusively and too palpably self-evident. But this is a point, it appears, somewhat above or beneath the understanding of the prefect. He never once thought it probable or possible that the minister had deposited the letter immediately beneath the nose of the whole world by way of best preventing any portion of that world from perceiving it. But the more I reflected upon the daring, dashing, and discriminating ingenuity of D, upon the fact that the document must always have been at hand if he intended to use it to good purpose— and upon the decisive evidence obtained by the prefect that it was not hidden within the limits of that dignitary's ordinary search, the more satisfied I became that, to conceal this letter, the minister had resorted to the comprehensive and sagacious expedient of not attempting to conceal it at all. Full of these ideas, I prepared myself with a pair of green spectacles and called one morning, quite by accident, at the ministerial hotel. I found D at home, yawning, lounging, and dawdling, as usual, and pretending to be in the last extremity of ennui. He is, perhaps, the most really energetic human being now alive, but that is only when nobody sees him. To be even with him, I complained of my weak eyes and lamented the necessity of the spectacles under cover of which I cautiously and thoroughly surveyed the apartment, while seeming intent only upon the conversation of my host. I paid special attention to the large writing-table near which he sat, and upon which lay confusedly some miscellaneous letters and other papers, with one or two musical instruments and a few books. Here, however, after a long and very deliberate scrutiny, I saw nothing to excite particular suspicion." At length my eyes, in going the circuit of the room, fell upon a trumpery filigree card rack of pasteboard that hung dangling by a dirty blue ribbon from a little brass knob just beneath the middle of the mantelpiece. In this rack, which had three or four compartments, were five or six visiting cards and a solitary letter. This last was much soiled and crumpled. It was torn nearly in two, across the middle, as if a design in the first instance to tear it entirely up as worthless had been altered or stayed in the second. It had a large black seal, bearing the D's cipher very conspicuously, and was addressed in a diminutive female hand to D, the minister himself. It was thrust carelessly, and even, as it seemed, contemptuously into one of the upper divisions of the rack. No sooner had I glanced at this letter than I concluded it to be that of which I was in search. To be sure, it was, to all appearance, radically different from the one of which the prefect had read us so minute a description. Here the seal was large and black, with a decipher. There it was small and red, with the ducal arms of the S family. Here the address, to the minister, was diminutive and feminine. There the superscription, to a certain royal personage, was markedly bold and decided. The size alone formed a point of correspondence, but then 
the radicalness of these differences, which was excessive, the dirt, the soiled and torn condition of the paper, so inconsistent with the true methodical habits of D, and so suggestive of a design to delude the beholder into an idea of the worthlessness of the document, these things together with the hyper-obtrusive situation of this document, full in the view of every visitor, and thus exactly in accordance with the conclusions to which I had previously arrived, these things, I say, were strongly corroborative of suspicion in one who came with the intention to suspect. I protracted my visit as long as possible, and while I maintained the most animated discussion with the minister on a topic which I knew well had never failed to interest and excite him, I kept my attention really riveted upon the letter. In this examination, I committed to memory its external appearance and arrangement in the rack, and also fell, at length, upon a discovery which set at rest whatever trivial doubt I might have entertained. In scrutinizing the edges of the paper, I observed them to be more chafed than seemed necessary. They presented the broken appearance which is manifested when a stiff paper, having been once folded and pressed with a folder, is refolded in a reversed direction, in the same creases or edges which had formed the original fold. This discovery was sufficient. It was clear to me that the letter had been turned as a glove inside out, redirected, and resealed. I bade the minister good morning and took my departure at once, leaving a gold snuff-box upon the table. The next morning, I called for the snuff-box, when we resumed quite eagerly the conversation of the preceding day. While thus engaged, however, a loud report, as if of a pistol, was heard immediately beneath the windows of the hotel, and was succeeded by a series of fearful screams, and the shoutings of a mob. D rushed to the casement, threw it open, and looked out. In the meantime, I stepped to the card rack, took the letter, put it in my pocket, and replaced it by a facsimile, so far as regards externals, which I had carefully prepared at my lodgings, imitating the D cipher very readily by means of a seal formed of bread. The disturbance in the street had been occasioned by the frantic behavior of a man with a musket. He had fired it among a crowd of women and children. It proved, however, to have been without ball, and the fellow was suffered to go his way as a lunatic or a drunkard. When he had gone, D came from the window, whither I had followed him immediately upon securing the object in view. Soon afterwards, I bade him farewell. The pretended lunatic was a man in my own pay. But what purpose had you, I asked, in replacing the letter by a facsimile? Would it not have been better at the first visit to have seized it openly and departed? D, replied Dupin, is a desperate man and a man of nerve. His hotel, too, is not without attendance devoted to his interests. Had I made the wild attempt you suggest, I might never have left the ministerial presence alive. The good people of Paris might have heard of me no more, but I had an object apart from these considerations. You know my political prepossessions. In this matter, I act as a partisan of the lady concerned. For eighteen months the minister has had her in his power. She has now him in hers, since, being unaware that the letter is not in his possession, he will proceed with his exactions as if it was. Thus will he inevitably commit himself at once to his political destruction. His downfall, too, will not be more precipitate than awkward. 
It is all very well to talk about the fossilis descensus of Ernie, but in all kinds of climbing, as Catalani is said of singing, it is far more easy to get up than to come down. In the present instance, I have no sympathy, at least no pity, for him who descends. He is that monstrum horrendum, an unprincipled man of genius. I confess, however, that I should like very well to know the precise character of his thoughts when, being defied by her, whom the prefect terms a certain personage, he is reduced to opening the letter which I left for him in the card rack. How? Did you put anything particular in it? Why, it did not seem altogether right to leave the interior blank. That would have been insulting. D. at Vienna once did me an evil turn, which I told him quite good-humouredly that I should remember. So, as I knew he would feel some curiosity in regard to the identity of the person who had outwitted him, I thought it a pity not to give him a clue. He is well acquainted with my MS, and I just copied into the middle of the blank sheet the words, A scheme so hateful, if it is not worthy of Atreus, is worthy of Thaistes. They are to be found in Crebillon's Atre. Okay, there we go. That's going to do it for this episode of the History of Literature. I hope you enjoyed it. You can find Mike and me on Twitter at LiteratureSC and at the Jack Wilson. That's J A C K E Wilson. We're a member of LitHub Radio and the Podglomerate Podcast Network. That's www.thepodglomerate.com. I hope you all can subscribe and rate and review and do all those nice things. For which I am truly grateful. I'm Jack Wilson. Thank you for listening, and we'll see you next time. Universe.